Hi, everybody. I'm Josh Constein, your host of Press Club, where we bring together the big names in tech to talk about the big ideas. And a big idea on the top of every founder's mind is the sociology of startups, how you actually get people to care about what you're building and stick around long enough to enjoy the utility. And Andrew Chen from, Andrew, uh, from Andreessen Horowitz, formerly a lead of growth at Uber, wrote this incredible book called The Cold Start Problem, detailing the stories and strategies from some of today's top startups, ranging from Clubhouse, uh, as well as Twitch, Uber, Tinder, and a ton of others. And Andrew's going to talk to us a little bit today about some of the, coin, the terms that he coined, uh, some of the big strategies that he saw work, and what we're seeing from new things like Web3 that are bringing new types of strategies for growth and network effects to market. So, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us here today. I would love to kick it to you right off the bat and say, maybe you could just tell us, what's your favorite story of growth from this book? Well, one of the things that is really fun about this topic is that uh, the, the, the whole concept of network effects, the whole concept of needing to you know, kickstart it and to solve the cold start problem is really something that has been around for a really long time, like a really long time. And, and when, you, when you look at this term network effects, um, I have this uh, amazing quote excerpt, uh, you know, from from uh, the investor update for the American Telephone and Telegraph Company in 1905, and it basically says, you know, a, a telephone is worthless by itself. I'm paraphrasing here. Telephone's worthless on its own. It's only valuable based on who it connect, can, can connect you to, and its value increases the more people um, that, that that are on the platform. And so, um, and, and so, what that really tells you is that this whole concept of um, network effects has been with us for a really, really long time, over a hundred years in different forms of technology. And so my favorite example, Josh, to, 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 uh, to answer your question is, um, I love the, the case study of how coupons were invented, um, because coupons are this thing that we kind of take for granted now, uh, but was actually invented in the early 1900s in order to get, um, uh, consumer packaged goods, things like toothpaste, and, um, and, and brushes and deodorants and things like that into uh, grocery stores, which were often owned by moms and pops. And so the whole problem there, the whole cold start problem that exists is it's, it's a multi-sided network. You have consumers, you have the CPG companies, and you have the grocery stores. And the grocery stores say, hey, we have limited shelf space. We don't want to put your products um, you know, into our thing because none of our consumers ask for it. And so what ends up happening is um, uh, uh, th th this is all in, in this book called My Life in Advertising by a guy named Claude Hopkins. And he said, well, how about this? Let's run these ad campaigns in all the local newspapers and just tell people we're going to have this thing. It's going to be a coupon. You're going to be able to redeem it for 10% um, you know, off. And, um, and then we're going to go to all the grocery stores and say, we're about to run this huge campaign in your city for this new toothpaste that we want stocked in your store. And if people come in and they can't find this toothpaste, they're going to be upset. They're going to go to your competitors. And so you might as well stock the toothpaste. Um, and, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and so they did. That's um, a bit of a strong then, arm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it is a strong arm. But, but the funny thing is, is you look at that and you're like, wow, that's kind of, that's a really ingenious way. It's a way that obviously costs money to get it started. But how different is it than, um, you know, Uber in the early years, basically just using money to pay drivers, regardless of whether or not they were taking trips or not, to just hang out on the service, just to bootstrap one side of the you know, network or um, early Postmates and DoorDash, they would put restaurants that actually weren't um, officially partners into the app. And they would just send people to like, go pick up the food. Um, and, and uh, you know, and eventually you get to a point where you say, look, we're already like giving you tons of money you go to the restaurants and say, look, we're already giving you tons of money. Like you should just be an official partner with us. I mean, there, these are all these like really clever, interesting ways that echo in time um, and, and, and are applicable to multiple cycles of technology, which I find really compelling. So I love that you start off the book just trying to dispel a bunch of the myths about network effects. There's these things that people talk about all the time from this very surface level, and you very rarely get like dug deep enough to understand why they matter or especially how to actually exploit them. So maybe you could just tell us, what do you think of as the biggest myth or that you want to dispel about network effects? Yeah, well, I think one of the most contrarian conclusions in the whole book is that um, large companies with network effects, right? And we all know the ones that, you know, we're talking about the big social media giants, the big mobile giants, um, the big marketplace companies. Um, they're often described particularly in once, you know, history has been written as these in invincible behemoths that 
um, you know, frankly, deserve to be regulated, that deserve that that are going to beat everybody. And I think once you've been through a couple technology cycles, what you realize is like, oh wow, like how many social network products have I tried now over the years, and why do they keep getting invented, and the people keep losing interest in finding the next one? Um, you look at uh, you know, J- Josh, I, I, you know, we're we're probably about the same age, and so um, you know you and I probably started on like AOL instant messenger. And then there was like a whole generation that was about like live journal and Zanga. I would never have been a writer if I hadn't just like started on aim, like just trying to write love sonnets to my crushes. It was just, yeah, it was was so embarrassing and cringy, but like it was an incredible way to just give people a start in both like social networking and writing. But yeah, it's amazing how the, the platform shifts over and over again, seem to just eviscerate these old products and constantly lead to a new emergence of a new one. That's right. And, and, and so then you have to ask the question, well, if network effects are so powerful and these companies are so invincible, why do we have to like choose a new social platform every five years to all get on and, and say that that's the great new thing? Like, shouldn't, shouldn't we all be using AIM right now? Right. Like, why is it that all my chat actually goes through Slack and WhatsApp? And then now, of course, you know, because of Web3, um, we're all, you know, hanging out on Discord now. Like, why is it that we keep going through multiple generations of these things? And I think the reason ultimately is that um, core to to the cold start problems framework that that I present in the book, my argument is that there is always going to be an S-curve. And at the end of the S-curve, as you face market saturation, you face trolls, you face spammers, you face um, regulatory action, you face like all of these different things. What ends up happening is that inevitably, whether you're a marketplace or a social media product or one of these B2B collaboration tools, um, there's always going to be a hot new product that's going to be able to cherry pick some little part of your audience that you're not serving very well. And if they can take that network and they can build what what I call in the book an atomic network, sort of a, um, a dense enough, stable enough network that can grow on its own, you can think of that as like a Uber, Uber's uh, 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 concept of just like a city, you know, where they're going to be popular or Slack's atomic network is like a team um, within a company. If they can, if, if a new entrant can come in and cherry pick that and then start accumulating new networks over time and eventually build a broader network, then that, that incumbent is going to be in trouble. And so I think that's why even in commerce, it's like, you know, why doesn't eBay, you know, run, run the whole show? Why doesn't, you know, AOL instant messenger run the whole show? It's like, it's because, um, we're just we're like these large companies are actually not as invincible as as uh, you know we, we're we're often taught that they are. This seems like why so many of these networks uh, are desperately trying to figure out what is the next big computing platform to make sure that they're ready and building for that. And I think one of the most iconic examples is Mark Zuckerberg and this sudden massive push into the metaverse. And I think it it seems kind of out of left field until you realize that back in 2012, Mark and Facebook tried to build their own app store and Apple wouldn't let them. Apple has these rules where you can't build an app store in an app store, as they say, where you can't basically create a place where you can browse different apps that you can download to your phone inside of an existing app. And that shut him out from creating his own economy of apps. And I feel like that was such a scarring experience that he is just dead set on making sure that if, you know, whether it's virtual reality with Oculus uh, or the metaverse with Horizon, that the next computing platform in which all of these consumer experiences are going to happen is you know, is owned by Facebook because it's those giant platform shifts that can absolutely decimate old network effects and create the kind of new experiences that are so markedly different in their medium that even if you have an amazing network in the past medium, it doesn't apply. And that's why you saw new giants come up with the advent of mobile. And now the new, the you know, the, the latest space in the creator economy, you're seeing even newer players like TikTok suddenly spring up because when a computing platform shifts or the massive medium through which we communicate shifts, suddenly these network effects maybe cease to exist. That's right. That's right. And, and, and I think that that is one of the things that came up in my research, which I thought was so fascinating, is that there actually haven't been that many huge, huge, huge shifts in platforms over time. You kind of had like mainframe to like personal computing. And then there was maybe you divide that into two sections, one with which is um, an era that was all about text and like command line. Um, and was sort of like MS-DOS and, you know, CPM and like all of those old operating systems. And then into the modern graphical user interface, then you had 
browsers, and then you had um, uh, you know mo mobile, and then now maybe maybe Web three or maybe VR AR or something like that. But if you study at the edges of these transitions, what you learn is some like really interesting interesting stuff. I mean, these days we think of Microsoft as being this incredibly um, you know amazing powerful force, but funny enough, back in like the mid nineteen eighties, they were they were just another company, which is kind of amazing. And they were just building applications. I think at, at one point I was reading about how um, they were making um, uh, most of their money on like actually making applications for the Mac, which is crazy. Um, but their entire Windows, uh, oh, sorry, their entire like Microsoft Office suite actually became the leader only after the entire operating system, uh, you know, paradigm shifted to graphical Windows, um, graphical editing. And basically all the old guys, which were like Lotus and WordPerfect and all these companies that no one remembers anymore, um, you know, they stuck to text. And so I, I think I think that is a really, you know, Josh, that, that's exactly your point. That's a very like kind of old, old school example. But like, I think exactly to your point, every time there's a technology platform, if you aren't on it, then um, you're in trouble. And at the same time, these larger companies face this issue where um, when, when you talk to um, some, some of the, the, these more um, these incumbents about whether or not they want to embrace Web3, the hard part with it is, you know, it's easy to quote like, hey, only half a million people have bought NFTs. Half a million people is not a lot. Um, there's 70 million wallets, but, you know, that's not that's not two billion. That's not, you know, four billion. And so, you know, maybe we, let's wait. But the problem becomes if you have a new company that embraces Web3 before anybody else and they pick up momentum, then it becomes very, very hard to, um, to, to, to chase and catch up to them. It can be tempting to stick with your old business model and not want to change. And, you know, AOL, you know, I worked for TechCrunch, which was owned by AOL, which was owned by Yahoo, which was owned by Verizon <laughs> <laughs> in the most like, ridiculous Russian doll of startup acquisitions of, of all time. But the you know, AOL was still making a ton of money from dial-up internet and this very like bespoke service, which was basically like they could take control of your grandparents' computer and like debug it or fix something that they had gotten broken uh, remotely. And it was like this super high service, but still like dial-up service. And there's still a lot of people that were effectively paying for their old AOL service like 20 years on and it just never canceled. And so you can see why it's like tantalizing to stick with that old model, but it becomes, <laughs> it's so dangerous because like then you're like, oh, this new thing doesn't matter this new thing doesn't matter and then all of a sudden it's just crept up behind a front of you and the network effects kick in and all of a sudden your users just race over to this new thing um, that's right the one thing i think is fascinating with this is what happens with like good enough products and the idea of overcoming network effects or leveraging them to beat existing products and i think one of the most interesting examples here was instagram stories and snapchat stories you know snapchat stories they invented this new medium full screen vertical photo and video slide show-esque um, social media. And I was like, this is amazing. This is going to be the ground, the bedrock of social media. You're like, you're never going to get wider bleed than full screen. So how is something going to undercut this the way that photos undercut text and, you know, video undercut photos? You know, this was full screen. It was just like there was nowhere else to go. But there was somewhere else to go, which was where the network already existed. And so even though Snapchat had pioneered this incredible product and had years of a head start, when Instagram made you know, essentially an inferior clone of it at first. It took a long time before it really kind of excelled and built its own features that were really unique to Instagram. You know, all it needed though was the fact that a lot of people just didn't want to start a new social graph on Snapchat. And so by, you know, leveraging its existing network, it was able to bully Snapchat largely out of winning that market, steal it, and it's now kind of the central product of Instagram. And I think that just really shows that power of network effect that you know, if you, even if you have an inferior product, if you have a, in, in, you know, a superior network, you can sometimes beat the, 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 uh, the first mover. Right. Have you seen other examples of that happening? Like first, you know, second mover with better networks beating the first mover? Yeah, well, I, what I was going to say is I agree with everything you said. And also Snapchat is still worth $100 billion. Right? Actually, I, I, didn't, I didn't check what it is today, right? <laughs> true, true. Messaging is hard to beat. <laughs> yeah, so, so I, do, I do think that like you're, you're, you're you know, to your point, I think that the dynamics, the physics of competing in one network product versus another network product is very different than a world where you're just building widgets. In that world, it's much more like, well, you know, you're, you need to build a brand, you need to have better features than other people. Um, but it's really interesting, to your point, in a world where your offering is actually defined half by the product and half by who it lets you connect with in different ways, it means that you might have a worse product, but if your network is truly that much better, then off you go. And I would say that actually some of the most interesting, like if I were a founder today, 
um, one of the biggest things that I would be thinking about is what are uh, what are product categories that don't necessarily look like they have network effects that you could add network effects to, and you know off you go. And I'm just going to use a couple examples. Um, you know, in the case of something like um, Microsoft Word or Microsoft Excel, these were products that did not look like they had network effects. You it lets you author a thing. You can then you know print it out. You can email it to people, etc. Um, but all the collaboration kind of lives outside the product. And what someone like Google can do is they can build workspace. They can build commenting, collaborative editing. You know, you can Notion's doing the same thing. And then all of a sudden, you're competing. You know, very very differently because you're you're then competing in a world where your colleagues can actually bring you into these the, these documents and get you going in them and engage you um, and acquire you in in ways that are that are very very different. Oh, uh, on that point though, it's like what I think is so fascinating there is that Google brought collaboration and network effects to the input of text. And now you see Substack bringing it to the output of text, the idea that building an audience on the other side of things and saying, yes, instead of leaving the entire distribution to you and you're just saying, oh, you're simply a tool. Now you're saying, oh, like, I don't want to leave Substack not just because it's a better input tool, but because it has better output uh, you know, performance. Yes, yes, that's right. That's right. Exactly. And, and, and I think that um, those, these kinds of innovations are so important because once you're then competing in a, you know, what one product doesn't have a network, the other one does, then you're really fighting kind of like, like, you know, completely unfairly. You just have all these advantages. You have, you can, you can tap into viral growth. You can use your network to reactivate, um, uh, churned users. You have all these like really interesting tools at your disposable versus when you're in a world where you have a network and they have a network, um, then network effects actually kind of like doesn't directly help you, right? That's why in a world like, Lyft versus Uber in San Francisco, where you both have kind of 50-50 market share, it's not clear who's going to win that one. Like then that has a lot more to do with product functionality, ties into Uber Eats, like all these other things, as opposed to, you know, being able to just use leverage network effects um, and off you go. And then Josh, the, the thing I was going to to take an earlier point that you had made about Instagram stories um, that, that, that I wanted to make that is, is a little bit um, tangential, that I think is so interesting is that um, Instagram Stories is a great is 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 really a great um, example of a situation where, as the Instagram network started to grow, and this happens in almost every single product, as your network grows, you actually have this um, negative effect that starts to take place, which is that your your users actually start producing less and less content over time, and you can see that on everything. Like even you know we're talking about social media right now, but like even if you were to look at like like, a, you know, Slack instance or like something like that, um, as the thing grows, people become, and, and as channels grow, um, people, your users just become less engaged. And, and one of the big reasons is because, you know, people are effectively, they're shy. There's this concept called context collapse where people are worried about being misinterpreted. Um, they don't want, you know, they don't want their mom to see what they're posting on, on Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. And something that is ephemeral like stories actually provides a really, really interesting solve to actually help people continue to do that. And that's the kind of product innovation that you need to do in order to be an incumbent and continue to scale. Um, versus, you know, to our earlier uh, discussion, Josh, you can't just rest on your laurels and just expect it to all work. All right, so I wanna get into some of the tactics that you're seeing that are working for early products that are trying to get off the ground, get up from that cold start problem to that atomic network that they can start to replicate and grow on. All right, so Andrew, I wanna ask, what have you seen is working right now? Because there's been so much change in the industry lately. You know, cost of acquisition has gone up massively. It can be so expensive to try to buy your way to growth right now, especially if you're using traditional channels. Uh, press and media is overloaded. There's so many launches. People like people have more phone apps on their phone than they can even use. Most people say, I think it's like the most the average app is never used or opened. You know, the people just download things and never even really try them. Uh, and that early adopter enthusiasm that maybe was characteristic of you know early 2010. Uh, startup media and TechCrunch, where I worked and all these places, was that people were super excited. There's new things to try. Like anything, there's only a few rounds a week, a few product launches a week, and now those channels are so overloaded that you know just fighting to even get press attention is tough enough. But then the audience is super fragmented between all of these different publications. There's so much attention on big tech and its effect on democracy and misinformation and the economy that it can be really tough to get attention and start to get off the ground. So we'd love to hear some of the tactics that you find are working that are especially 
especially especially cost efficient ones that you find are really uh, working for these early stage companies trying to get from the cold start to the atomic network? Two things there. So one is um, I've always and 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 uh, uh, you know I've, I've tweeted this a bunch of times and and argue with people on the internet about this, which is that in particular products that have network effects um, really should not depend on PR and and uh, media to, for launch because what that does is it actually gives you a random set of users um, that aren't connected uh, to each other and you actually need that density you need that um, you know that connective tissue between people in order to to get it to work and you know to, to the atomic network concept that that we're just referring to um, one of the big things that you have to do is you have to have a good thesis to understand what does a proper atomic network look like for your product? Um, if you are Zoom, um, it means that just two or three people is enough uh, to, to set up a meeting and have a delightful experience. Um, if you are more like Slack and it's a product that's for your team to chat with each other, that's going to be more like five to 10 people. Again, very interconnected um, in order for that to work. Versus if you're building like a dating app, right? You're building Tinder, you're building... Um, or, or you're building a, a marketplace company um, like Airbnb, you probably need hundreds of network participants in order for it to work. Because, you know, after all, if you're swiping through a whole bunch of profiles, um, you're, if, if you quickly swipe through 10 and then, you know, that's it, then you're probably going to bounce after that. Um, and so if you have that goal in mind, then the question becomes, okay, well, um, you need ideally five, 10, or, you know, maybe hundreds of people to all use the product at the same time in the same way in order for it to work. And I think what we're seeing um, in, through all this is, um, especially in, 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 in the modern era, is that a lot of the things that had worked in the Web 2.0 days, and Josh, you covered many of these companies, and so you would know, um, you know, a lot of the older Web 2.0 companies, they relied on a lot on like address books and mobile contacts, they relied on, um, uh, you know, on, on um, uh, you know, getting starting in college campuses um, and, and, and going, you know, launching that way, which is what Tinder and Facebook famously did. Um, and so I think you often want the same effect, but you have to figure out what is the modern, uh, you know, kind of contemporary version of it. And the problem with using channels that have worked in the past is oftentimes they get burned out. And because they get burned out, then... Um, uh, it means that consumers get used to them and you have to move on to something else. So, so what is working today? Well, you know, I think one of the big reasons why the creator economy has been um, such a big focus area for um, new founders has been that we're still at a point right now where if you can build a great product and, you know, we, we, we reference Substack a number of times. Substack, I think, is, is uh, one of the ones that's been able to really leverage this go-to-market channel. And you can get a creator to put your link in their bio and then for them to tweet about it or to post stories about it or whatever. What happens is effectively, and you've built an atomic network right there. Your atomic network is the creator and their audience. And if you can repli if you can do that once and you know that you can then get a second creator and a third creator and you can replicate that multiple times, you can probably get 100 networks going. You can probably get 1,000 networks going. And then you have to wire up all the networks so that people can then find new creators and creators can find new audiences. And then, boom, you have a global digital network effect that's based on that. And I think this is one of the reasons why the creator economy has been um, such an unlock for companies like Patreon and Substack and OnlyFans and Beacons. And, you know, there's a whole slew of them that have emerged, um, you know, over the years. I think the other one, Josh, is, you know, that I think we're all now watching is, um, is, is what's happening in Web3. Um, and what's so exciting about Web3 is, um, and, and I kind of cover this in, in, tangentially in the book, is in, in, in the Web 2.0 era, the whole concept, this is one of my colleagues, Chris Dixon, um, wrote a wonderful blog post called Come for the Tool, Stay for the Network, with the idea that you should be able to build a tool that's like photo filters for Instagram, or it's like, um, you know, folder storage and synchronization like Dropbox. And then you can build a network on top of it um, where you start out with the utility and you engage because of the utility, you retain because of the utility, and then you're gradually introduced to the network. You start following people, you start sharing things, um, and, then, and then off you go. And, and, uh, and, and I think Web3 has, has created this very interesting model that kind of inverts a lot of this, right? Uh, now what's happening is if you take something like um, Axie Infinity, you come in and you might actually just buy an Axie. You might just buy... Um, you know, NFTs and tokens um, for, for one of these games, primarily for the economic opportunity of it. 
um, because you think it's going to it's going to go up. Um, but then what happens is once you own it, you sort of have a the, the ability to then engage in the actual gameplay and to, to engage in the actual community. And so that's sort of a instead of come for the tool, stay for the network. It's a little bit like um, you know come for the um, you know economic uh, 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 you know sort of gameplay and then stay for the um, you know the, the, the long term engagement that the product offers. And stay for the cult. Yeah, yeah, stay for the cult. Yes, yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. I did this post about name tagging, which is why you see all of these Web3 products creating sort of an emoji set that represents them. And that's and they're putting it in their, you know, all their allegiance. They get their their followers to put it in their name. And then it's not just when they post about that thing. It's everything they do on social media carries that tag and drives attention back to the original. And it's a way to, you know, use that sense of affiliation. The fact that people want to stay for communities rather than just when after they come for the tool that allows you to grow that community really fast because it becomes part of people's identity. And I think people are just desperate for affiliation right now. So any way that you can make people feel a sense of belonging rather than just a, uh, the sense of being a user or consumer, I think they, they are in, then feel empowered to grow. And maybe that's why Web3 is also seeing this incredible explosion of growth is for the first time, rather than you know the, the, the network utility or the network effect increasing where, oh, the network is getting better for me to use as more people use it. It's like no, my my financial uh, you know outcome improves as more people join, as more people care about this NFT project that I've bought into, or as more people join this game that I've already owned a, earned a bunch of tokens in. You know, I actually get financial uh, benefit and financial network effects out of it, which I think is super powerful. Though it does also confound a lot of the communication of saying like, do you really like this thing, or are you just pumping your bag? <laughs> well, I, well that, 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 that's that's a great point, which is I think that. Um, in the same way that you actually often found products that had built an amazing tool and no one was really using the network, right? And, and actually, there's a, there's a great TechCrunch article from, from you know, many years back where uh, somebody had actually crawled the Instagram APIs. And um, they were able to show that, um, this was, I think, six months after launch, that the vast majority, I think it was like over 70%, 80% of users were not following anyone on Instagram. Um, they were really only using it as a utility. And it, it took years for the network to actually fill in in such a way where then it became a real thing. And I think we'll often see, see that um, maybe in Web3 as well, where there's going to be a lot of just, you know, hodlers and, um, you know, they're not really engaging. And then it's going to take a while for the products to actually get good enough that people are going to be excited. Um, but, but just to compare, you know, this from a growth standpoint, I think um, in previous years, we have had many, many, many versions of a give-get kind of scheme. Right, you have uh, drop boxes like give, you know, give, give disk space, get uh, space kind of offer. You have um, Airbnbs, Ubers, um, and, and Ubers kind of like give ten dollars, get ten dollars kind of thing. Um, and and in many ways, by owning a token and promoting it, and then getting the economic benefit as the token's value goes up, is kind of another flavor of this with obviously very very different mechanics. But the incentives are, you know, ultimately. Um, you know, the same. And so, so, so I think, you know, to, to your point, I think everyone needs to continually um, come up with new uh, ways to solve the cold start problem, because as soon as it's in a book, the problem is that it might be, it might be a classic strategy, but it might become dated once too many companies try it. Um, and so a lot of like the edge that you get is by embracing whatever is the new cutting edge um, strategy that, uh, you know, may, maybe uniquely suits your product, um, you know, versus others. Okay, so one of the other strategies that I've seen working over and over again is the sense of exclusivity and creating a little bit of FOMO, even if the goal is long-term to be as public as possible and have as many users in it as possible. So who better to talk about this subject than Paul Davison, who started Clubhouse, which you know famously started with an exclusive model to be able to both just handle the engineering requirements of putting so many voices together, but, <laughs> but also uh, to, you know, to help make sure that the, the early network modeled what they wanted to see in the emergent norms of users. And so uh, we'd love to hear your opinions, Andrew and Paul, on that strategy of you know, starting with a little bit of FOMO and exclusivity uh, as, a, you know, as a, you know, a means to the end of getting to everybody and making a product that's great for a super wide audience and being totally inclusive. Yeah, I'm happy to talk to that a little bit. Um, this is a really good conversation, by the way. The, um, <clears throat> the, the way that Rohan and I thought about it was never about exclusivity. We think about it as liquidity, and we think about intimacy. And the, the first place we started was really liquidity. 
Because if you have a synchronous product, you need to have liquidity among a relevant audience in order to get them to have a good experience. So the way that we did that was not really the invite model. The invite model was actually because there were two of us for for months and um, social products don't normally work. And so we really just wanted to focus on the product, focus on the community, scale it in a measured way, iterate, get feedback every day. We ship new updates every day for months. And, and that was really why we did the invite model. But the, the bigger thing, I think, was the very first version of the app, the whole thing was one room. There was no follow graph. Everyone followed everyone. There was one under the hood. We just had you auto-follow everyone. There was no audience. Everyone is a speaker. And the very first version of the app, you'd open up the app and you would be in the room. The notifications would go out to everyone else who was on the app. It would buzz their phones. And I had a Slack integration set up with Rohan so that if anyone joined, we would get notified when they were going through onboarding and we would be there when they landed there. So liquidity was really an, an important thing because everyone had a good experience when they first joined. The, the second thing was making sure that you had a community of people who would enjoy talking to each other. So, so we tried to uh, invite you know, the first few dozen people in a way that, that, that helped ensure that, right? So, so we, we got a big group of people that, were, um, that we knew were friends with each other, that were friends of friends with each other, that were interested in talking about a lot of the similar topics. And we said, hey, we built another app because we spent like 10 years building apps and, 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 and asked them if they would try it out. And um, it was really funny. Like I remember onboarding one person and, and he got to the end of onboarding and he looked at all the list of people that he, had, that he was auto-following. And he said, wait, I don't remember you asking for contact permissions. How do you have my contacts? And I said, no, no. These are just all of the people who are on the app. <laughs> and he's like, coincidentally, they're all my friends. And we're like, well, it's kind of by design. And, um, and then, then I think that's the way a lot of communities grow is they start with the center and they grow outwards. And as they grow outwards, there's this natural mitosis. A smaller communities peel off. And what you need to do is design a product uh, a, a, with a network structure that, that can allow those multiple communities to coexist. So, so that's sort of how we thought about it. The goal has always been to, to be open to everyone, but to empower people to, to have these own, their, their own containers that they could put around rooms, around clubs, to help them bring people together the, the way they want to bring people together. So instead of a single network of beta testers, it grows into a global network of many different communities. But as someone who starts one of those communities, like either a room or, or, or a persistent club, you have the ability to choose what the rules are and who's going to be in and who's not going to be in and how you want to bring people together and what you want to talk about. And I, and I think that's how we've approached scaling. It sounds like the some of the ideas there is that that network density, that a lot of products just grow kind of in all directions at once, just trying to maximize the total number of people that sign up. But if they're not actually interconnected, if they don't have overlapping interests, if they're not geographically dense or they're not already in IRL social graphs together, it can actually feel like a really crowded room where you don't know anyone. And so it actually doesn't feel social. If anything, it can feel kind of awkward. Um, and the other part of it that, that you really touched on is this concept of building the hard side, which is maybe the early group of people that are going to be the hardest people to, to, to recruit, uh, but are going to produce maybe the most content. And so if you can get them on board, maybe the, the other side, the people who are just want to listen and don't actually want to create, that that might be a little bit easier. And Andrew, you, you go deep into this concept of the hard side. Maybe you could just talk us through that. You know, I was just going to comment that um, it, it is funny to me that the narrative um, about Clubhouse eventually became about all about FOMO and invites and, you know, all that. And, uh, and, and, and I remember having so many conversations with Paul of just, how many invites should we let out giving, given that the servers were melting? Um, and, and that was the, one of the primaries, you know, inputs into the thing. Um, but by the way, Paul, I remember one thing that you, you, uh, that, that you and Ryan did that I thought was just so interesting was um, deciding who to give the invites to and, and trying to give invites primarily for really engaged people. Um, and, and I think what that does is that really grows the network out of the most engaged core as opposed to potentially, you know, sending it out to people that, you know, the parts of the network that are going to be a little bit more dormant, um, you know, as a, yeah. as a result. Yeah, absolutely. The algorithms gave um, invites to people who had been speaking and hosting rooms and, and you'd get a notification saying like, wow, thanks for being such a good contributor. We've added like three invites to your account. 
And then if you ended up inviting someone who also ended up being a good contributor, then we we would say, wow, thank you so much for inviting Shannon. She's been amazing. Um, we added a few more invites to your account. Please invite more people like Shannon. And so it, it biased yeah. it towards people that, that were good contributors, like you were saying. And then also having um, the nomination badge on your profile made people feel accountable for inviting really good people. So that, that was useful also. That's right. That's right. And, and I think that density, you know, Josh, going back to your question now, I think the density of the Met network matters so much. And that is actually why historically um, uh, having, you know, huge companies um, that are the incumbents in the space launch new products has historically been so difficult because what happens is inevitably the PM that's working on it is like, all right, well, let's put an ad basically for this new feature and try to siphon off users. And the challenge with that becomes, well, if you do it that way, how much interconnection and how much density in, in that network are you going to be able to do? So I think actually, interestingly enough, Instagram stories is maybe the rare case where that's been able to work versus, um, you know, Google Plus trying to, to, to get, you know, the, 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 the failed social network that Google tried um, to launch is, is, is one of the more, you know, common examples and why during the social network wars where obviously uh, Facebook eventually emerged uh, victorious, that although Yahoo had, you know, a concept and, and uh, you know, Microsoft and, you know, all sorts of people, um, you know, kind of came to the table with concepts. And so I think it's a really interesting one. But, but the hard side, the, the, the other part that you, um, terminology you just mentioned there, I think the idea um, that, that, that I'll uh, base that off of is that almost every network uh, that, that um, um, exists has multiple sides to it. And sometimes it's really obvious. Like in Uber's case, it's very, very obvious. You have riders and you have drivers. Um, and a driver, um, when I was at Uber, we would pay 500 bucks for a driver. And for a rider, we would pay like 10 or 20 bucks. So you really had a huge, huge value disparity between the two. For social media products, as we've been talking about, you have creators versus viewers. Obviously, there's a bunch of overlap. But interestingly enough, even when you look at things that look relatively symmetrical, like PayPal feels like, well, you know, people kind of just pay each other, right? Or you have um, something like WhatsApp where it feels like, well, everyone, everyone kind of chats and, you know, and, and also reads. And so do those really have um, a hard side um, of, of, of a network that's more valuable than the easy side that's, that's easy to get, but less valuable. And the reality is like, you still have a very small percentage of users that end up actually, you know, in WhatsApp case, WhatsApp's case, organizing the channels, inviting people, managing things, um, you know, and, and, and that often exists. Or in the case of PayPal, you often have these like, you know, merchants, who are professionally using PayPal as part of their workflow. And so, um, and what that means, Josh, kind of, you know, the argument that I make in, in the cold start problem is one of the ways to solve the cold start problem is to really build a product capability that is much, much, much better and really targets the hard side of the network and really improves something dramatically for them. And, you know, off you go. And I think Clubhouse, Paul, um, I'm, I'm curious if you think of it this way, but I think of Clubhouse as being a more than 10x experience, it might be a 100x experience for somebody who's an audio content creator, because the reality is trying to, um, uh, you know, build a podcast from scratch is so painful that, um, you know, Clubhouse is just so super simple in, in comparison. Yes, you should definitely download my podcast because it is very hard. <laughs> <laughs> but we have 30,000 downloads. People like it, I promise. <laughs> yeah, but Josh, you know, like actually working on your, your podcast and editing it and getting the RSS feeds all set up and everything versus hosting, you know, a show on, on Clubhouse. It's like, it's more than a, you know, it's like an order of magnitude difference. I think like the, um, I think that with podcasting, a couple things that, that we thought about when we started Clubhouse is like, we love the medium, we love it, but it's, it's really hard. And it's also fundamentally constrained by by RSS, right? And all else equal, I love open standards, but it just makes it it it's really hard because you have to figure out all the production tools yourself. You, the norms are that you have to do all the scheduling, all the guest finding, the the post production, the intro music, the cover art, and then you set up your RSS feeds. But then also getting growth is really hard. Like most people aren't. Like uh, you started a podcast, don't have the background, the network, the history that that the two of you have, and, and so it's really hard to get it off the ground. Like it's that's why you have podcast deals getting done because you literally have to spend all of this money on advertising or or figure out other ways to do it. And and, and full stack networks can have distribution built in, right? And and monetization is hard, and getting social feedback is hard, 
And, and so um, that's one thing. But then the, uh, the other thing that I think is important is that being fully focused on a, a specific medium is something that, that I think historically has mattered, right? Like uh, it, social platforms that come out, they're, they're kind of few and far between. They tend to happen when a new medium emerges on the internet. For text, we had Twitter. For photos, we had Instagram. For video, we had YouTube and now TikTok. And, and I think it's because when you're consuming a product, the, the way you use it is very much a function of that medium. If it's something like text or something like photos, it tends to be uh, rapid scan, fast consumption. The, the times when you think to pull out your phone and use it are when you have 20 seconds or two minutes and you're walking down the hallway to get a cup of coffee. You, you tend not to have AirPods in. You tend not to be looking to participate. You, the, the set of people you follow is very much a function of, of that medium. The, the business model, whether it's engagement-based or depth-based, is very much a function of that medium. The, the brand that emerges, the features you build, the discovery services within the app. And so um, I, I think that like that, that's another thing that, that factors into it. And right. um, you know, it's something we think about quite a bit. Yeah, well, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of really amazing things about Eugene Way's um, uh, essay status as a service, but oh, one yeah, of the so parts good. that, yeah, the part, one of the parts that I love that Paul, you know, something you said just reminded me of it is that he has this concept of like old money, which is basically when you have this social network that's been around for a really, really long time, um, what happens is the way the algorithms work, the way that um, all the social feedback loops work, it means that someone who started really early on that platform is going to continue to succeed and a new creator is going to find it hard um, to then to then break in. And so what ends up happening is when you have these creator tools for, you know, the hard side of the network as we've been we've been we've been talking about and you're able to then provide a fresh new network, new tooling and potentially a new medium that you know, like one of the things I always talk about is like, we all know people who are really charismatic, amazing at storytelling, but are, you know, not amazing photographers <laughs> that are not amazing, pithy, <laughs> pithy tweeters, you know, pithy writers, um, uh, you know, in all this. And so, um, so a medium like voice becomes really interesting. And I think that we're going to continue to see innovation in video and text and audio and um, memes and all sorts of stuff that allow that are that are going to be really interesting tools for people, but then also they're going to reset this old money phenomenon um, so that we 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 keep generating kind of new 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 generations of all of these social tools. Yeah, I mean, joining those new networks, I think, is one of the best investment opportunities that somebody who doesn't invest money into startups can actually do. It's just when you see a new social network that you think really has legs has an opportunity and especially that you have maybe a natural affinity towards their creation medium if you just spend a little bit of time to make content that's just above the average on that network the network grows underneath you and you can grow big remarkably fast which is you know I, i'll say that i don't think i deserve 4.4 million followers on clubhouse <laughs> i think I, I i liked it early yes you do and, John. I, started, yes, you do. and I started making content that i thought people would, would like here but it's you know every time there's a new social network and a new medium there's a great opportunity for a new class of creators with a different skill set to jump in and so i definitely recommend you know the 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 loss if it doesn't work out and the network doesn't grow is pretty low compared to the opportunity if it gets really big um, but that brings me to one other concept I've, I found has been super powerful for early stage startups to grow is this shareable moment. The idea that finding something in your app that instead of it just being uh, something that you, you consume inside the app is able to be exported and brought somewhere else. And I think TikTok used this to masterful uh, product or uh, performance where you know so much of media at the time was really hard to share. Like Instagram still won't let you like right click save or just like tap and hold to save photos or videos from the network. And TikTok instead turned that whole concept on its head and said, no, we want you to export our content. We want you, we'll put the, the, the TikTok wor uh, watermark on top of it, but then you're going to see that stuff on Instagram, on Twitter, on all your social networks, and naturally it's going to drive attention back to the original. I think Strava is another great example with this. Making the your running map, rather than it just being like, yeah, you ran this path, it gives you this map that's so inherently shareable, and they really encourage that, and you see those Strava maps everywhere, and I think that really helped that network to grow. And so whatever it is that you're making, even if you're making like a personal finance app where you think of most of the content as being really private and probably don't want to be sharing like <laughs> the exact figures of your bank account, even though now we have like public crypto wallets. So I regularly read uh, Wall Street Bets, which is uh, oh, exactly. um, which is full of people posting their their Robinhood accounts, usually showing them um, going going to zero. 
or nearly zero on on ridiculous. Um, yes, plebes get wrecked. I believe is what it's called <laughs> when, <laughs> when when people lose all their money and then are nice enough to share it for the the benefit and joy of yes. everybody else. But you know, whatever it is, the finding that like financial snapshot of your financial health or things that you learned or goals that you met. You know, finding whatever that is and being able to make it easily shareable, not just like oh, it looks like a screenshot, but give it a nice frame, turn it into a nice little video, and you realize that people have so many surfaces for sharing and the bottleneck is really just the time it takes to create content that stands out. And so if you can make something that gives people that free opportunity to make, to share something that looks really polished and professional, they're going to love it. And so great to see Clubhouse adding, you know, this the clips feature, which has been really powerful for people to be able to, you know, use that shareable moment with their audio. Uh, and yeah, I, I, Andrew, I, have you seen other examples like this that you think are really great uh, that maybe people should think about when they're building their their own networks and figuring out what their shareable moment is? Yeah, well, I, I was just going to say, I think that the, um, the the benefit of of the network effect, you know, we've been talking about it quite a bit from a conceptual standpoint, but I think when you think about what it is and how it actually are, is able to increase your metrics, um, what it comes down to is is that you can actually take this concept of network effect and I think actually divide it into three, um, three specific uh, effects that it drives, right? And so the first one is, the acquisition, the user acquisition network effect. And what that is, is can you get your network to, to, to bring new people onto the platform? And then the second one is, is engagement network effect, which is can you get your users to engage other people inside the network, thus increasing their retention over time? And then I have an economic one that's about um, you know, improving your business model as the network fills in. But, and, and so Josh, part of your, your question really is about kind of viral growth in the context of getting networks of people to share content, to share, to use invites um, in order to, 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 to drive this type of a network effect. And what's great about it is you don't have to spend money. It means that um, you know, startups don't have to give money to Google and Facebook in order for it to work. But in order for, for this to be a thing, you basically need to build features that number one, your existing users are excited to engage in, right? That's a big, that's a big if, that's a big um, you know, thing that you have to design for. And then second, the way that they end up bringing a new user into the platform, it means that you actually need to create um, some kind of a a step-by-step flow where eventually a piece of content or an invite or an email or notification or something needs to specifically hit a non-user, like somebody who's not already on the platform. And so what that often means is, um, in, in Dropbox's case, their most effective viral growth strategy ended up being about shared folders. If you come in via a shared folder, like someone is sending you, um, a, 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 you know, something that contains um, a project from work, um, you're going to activate, you're going to engage with that. If it's something where someone's sending you a, a YouTube video for you to watch, you're much more likely to understand what YouTube is and to use it. Um, and so, so Josh, I think, I think the, the, the most interesting thing there is um, most products actually don't have that, that many features that touch non-users. Um, most features are being built for existing users to deepen their engagement. And so you have to like actually deliberately decide to make these kinds of features and then you have to deliberately optimize them. And then um, one of the things that many, many folks, uh, many of you guys have heard at this point is you can, you can then measure all of it, which is you can, you can, you can measure it using um, a ratio that's called the viral factor. And the idea there is when you invite a thousand users into the product, do they end up inviting another thousand users and another thousand users that would be a viral factor of one versus if you um, uh, have a thousand users that invite 500 users and then 250 that would be a viral factor of 0.5 and so the closer you get to one the more this loop will so kind of self-perpetuate and so um, it's kind of part of the secret sauce of how a lot of these very fast virally growing products that's what's actually happening under the hood Okay, so one of my favorite parts about your book is the fact that you just coin terms left and right. Like everywhere I look, there's some new Andrew Chen uh, term that you should be using across the rest of your, you know, your startup and product building life. So I want you to give us the, the lightning round of just the quick definitions of some of these awesome terms that you've come to come up with. All right, so let's start off with Meerkat's Law. What is Meerkat's Law? Okay, Meerkat's Law is a, um, a series of equations borrowed from animal populations and ecology. Um, including social animals like meerkats, but also you put like fish, like sardines in there. You put like chimpanzees in there. Of course, you put humans in there that basically describe, uh, you know, the the, po- the negative effect of having not enough 
um, animals in a population. That's basically the cold start problem to then the sweet spot of having just enough animals. And then eventually you hit a point where there's overpopulation and then, um, and then, and then, you know, and then your, your population will cap out from there. That's hitting the ceiling. Um, and so I basically borrow meerkats, uh, you know, these animal population, uh, this framework and apply it to social networks and collaboration tools and marketplaces in the book. I've been calling this like the ghost town phenomenon, which is like really what I felt like happened with Google Plus, where you know, a whole bunch of people joined, but they got bored because there was nobody else they knew on the product because they kind of grew randomly in all directions. And then by the time the next person joined, their friends were already gone. And then when their friends joined, their original friends were gone. And it was just like, you never ended up getting to that snowball effect. Okay, so what about the law of shitty click-throughs? <laughs> yeah, so this one I've been writing about for quite a while, actually. And it's one of my favorite, which is the idea that um, every new marketing strategy starts out really strong, and then um, it always goes to shit. It's, you, just, you just can't help it. Um, and so uh, if, you, if you go back in time, the original internet banner ads that were invented in the late 1990s actually had 70% click-through rate. 7-0, it's like insane. You, can, you can't even imagine it now um, because the average banner ad click-through rate is like 0.1, 0.2, something like that. Um, and so this has happened not just with banner ads. It's happened with email. It's happened with... Um, you know, everything, which means that any new thing that we talk about, whether that's like these days would be like TikTok ads, um, which are very effective right now, but like, we'll see how long that lasts or this creator go to market thing, or like these web three, like token airdrops, um, you know, they're, they sound all great right now. And then within a few years, they're, they're going to stop working. All right. And finally, Flintstoning, what is that? <laughs> yeah. So if you, if you remember, um, uh, the Flintstones, the, 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 the caveman, uh, cavewoman, um, show with with Fred Flintstone and Wilma and uh, Barney and, and and that whole crew in Bedrock um, is where they lived. Um, they they represent and this is a cartoon. You guys can can uh, um, uh, look it up. Uh, but basically, they they had this um, these funny cars that were made out of rock and timber. And in this cartoon, when Fred Flintstone got into the car, um, this car would he'd get in, and then there was no engine, and so he literally just kind of like. Um, use his legs and quickly, um, you know, move the car around using his legs in, in a fury of of, uh, of of pedaling, basically. Um, and so the whole idea there is that a lot of times early on in these products, you just you Flintstone, which is you just use you just throw humans at the problem, um, and you just try to try to you know just brute force it that way. I think of Paul, by the way, Paul, your your original thing where you would just hang out in Clubhouse all day. I think of that yep. as Flintstoning. <laughs> yeah, but as an example, exactly, that's right. And and uh, you know, the, the Reddit also did this famously, where they had a homepage full of um, fake links that Steve Huffman and Alexis would just post, um, you know, by themselves. Um, and then and then you often have a lot of uh, uh, on-demand marketplace companies where the employees of the company will start by doing the work and then over time they'll actually hire drivers and other people. So there's there's a lot of kind of versions of this of just using brute force to to, to, to solve the cold start problem. I think I aged like a thousand years hearing you in detail try to describe what the Flintstones was, realizing <laughs> that like there are a lot of people on this app not old enough to have like ever remembered a Hanna-Barbera yes. cartoon. So yeah. thanks for that withering experience. Okay, boomer. <laughs> So here's a quick recap of the, the top things that we talked about today. So sometimes it can think, feel like some of these tech giants are invincible, that they are just these unbeatable behemoths. Maybe they should be regulated or they're going to beat everyone. But you quickly realize that, especially when there are platform shifts, these platforms are very, very vulnerable. When a computing platform shift happens, when we go from mainframes to uh, you know to text-based interfaces, to GUIs, to what you know, browsers, to mobile phones, and now eventually to virtual reality in the future, of, of Web3, there are huge opportunities to re-implement network effects because that platform will change, will often shatter the existing network effect. But you still, if you're if you're within a medium, you have to be in exponentially better. You can't just be linearly better to uh, overcome those network effects. And oftentimes, even if you make the best product, somebody with a better network can steal your attention the way that uh, Instagram stories did to Snapchat. Um, and you know, it can be tantalizing to stick with like your old product and not try to move into these new uh, these new spaces or learn about these new things, but you will quickly find that it's uh, it all seems like an underdog and underdog until all of a sudden, you know, the network gets big enough that the network effects really kick in and all of a sudden you'll see a lot of your users drain away. Um, but if you think about new, taking existing mediums and adding network effects, there can be a lot of great startup opportunities. You think of like Microsoft Word beget Google Docs with collaboration and network effects on the input, which beget Substack with network effects on the output. Um, and though sometimes it's not always about network effects. 
effects. You think, look at like Lyft versus Uber with 50-50 market share. When they both have very similar network effects in play, it ends up mattering more about the product functionality rather than just those networks. Um, and you'll find that as networks grow, you end up with context collapse, shyness kicks in, people worry about privacy, and you'll have more lurkers, people who aren't necessarily adding content to the community. And that's why you really have to focus on the hard side, which is the hardest side of the network to grow or the marketplace to grow, finding those core users that are going to drive a ton of the content, a ton of the engagement that the rest of the lurkers can then enjoy passively. Um, but really what you need to do is figure out how do you get to the minimum viable network or that atomic network. You know, for Zoom, maybe that's just three people in a company that use Zoom so they can start to chat together. For something like Reddit, you might take hundreds of people or even thousands to get enough attention all on something at once because you need that synchronicity. Um, otherwise, you end up with the meerkat problem where, you know, people, if you, or, you know, where meerkat's law uh, starts to kick in where if you don't have enough users, you know, it, the, the network is vulnerable to just constantly downward spiral uh, because people join, they don't see anything that they like and they leave. Uh, but if you, you can also think about that come for the tool, stay for the network strategy. Uh, you know, Instagram had 80% of its users who were actually not following anyone at first because they were just there for the tool. But over time, it became more and more about the distribution, not just uh, the creation. Um, and we talked about, uh, we talked with Paul Davison, the co-founder of Clubhouse, about intimacy versus exclusivity and the idea that an invite model can be really powerful for deliberately growing a network, for rather than just growing randomly in all directions where the users might be separate and you could end up with that ghost town issue, that instead if you grow with geographic density or interest density or within a, an IRL social graph, uh, people will make sure that there's always someone interesting to talk to, they're gonna be drawn into that network and they're gonna start to grow uh, the attention that it receives. And then if you, you know, I love the Clubhouse's idea of figuring out who are its best users, who are the ones that were driving their creating the most content and giving them the invites so that they're deliberately growing that network amongst other people who either are going to have an affinity for that content or might be creators themselves. And that can get you really big quickly while making sure you're having the users that are really going to contribute a lot. Uh, we talked about you know user acquisition network effects, engagement network effects, and financial network effects and how different those are. You know, Can you drive invites? Can you create content that drives retention? And then can you actually grow earnings so people stick around and find real value from it? And tracking your viral coefficient is one of the most important ways to do that. Figure out how many users each user adds to the network. And if you're not, if you're, you know, if you're less than one, you probably want to get it up closer to one so the network can actually become self-sustaining. Um, otherwise, in the meantime, you can just do the Flintstoning thing where you know maybe you can't build everything with AI and as scalable as you want it, but if you just start with something uh, that you can use manual labor on the back end to make something work in the meantime until it's ready. But I think the, the biggest thing overall is just this concept that uh, you know whatever you're building you need to think about who are the users that are going to really drive the attention to that product. How do you make it as easy for them to share their love of it, not just within the network, but outside of it with shareable moments uh, and ensuring that you drive a really great rapport with them, like value that hard side, because if you lose those, everything starts to dwindle away. But you know, there are, we're on the cusp of plenty of new computing shifts, or there are plenty of new network effects to exploit, new mediums uh, to create. So really excited to see what everyone builds out there. And with that, uh, Andrew, uh, I want to give it to you for a final word of where do you hope to see network effects go from here? Well, it, the, the funny thing about writing the book was um, I actually had several sections in it about um, VR, AR, and the metaverse, and Web3, and a lot of the new upcoming things that are happening. And what I noticed basically was um, I'd write a couple paragraphs and then I wait a week to go edit it and then and everything would change. Um, and these technologies are just changing so fast right now, um, but they very much have um, a, a lot of the theories built in. You know, you and I both value Bitcoin because other people value Bitcoin. You and I value a board ape because others value a board ape. Um, if you're going to be in the metaverse or you're going to play, um, you know, online video games, um, you're going to want to play with your friends. And if you're, if your friends aren't there, or if there aren't tournaments and esports organized around the games, they're going to be a lot less fun. And so because of all of this, um, uh, you know, there's just these new upcoming technologies that are so exciting. Um, I hope that, uh, many of the lessons from the book, um, which primarily focus around the web 2.0 era and kind of the latest generation of mobile apps, eventually um, that, 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 uh, uh, that the entrepreneurs and founders that are working on all these new technologies coming up, um, learn from it, implement it. And in a couple of years, maybe I'll do a refresh of the book um, with, with all uh, you know, examples from, from the metaverse and Web3 and um, all the great things that are coming. 
I look forward to experiencing that as an immersive VR experience rather than as a book. Uh, Andrew Chen, lead of growth at, at Uber, turned incredible investor at Andreessen Horowitz, one of my favorite pontificators on the, the future of social uh, and, and networks. Thank you so much for coming here. Please check out his book, The Cold Start Problem. It's incredible, wild stories of growth and strategy from you know Uber, Tinder, Twitch, Reddit, and a ton of other amazing companies. Uh, but I hope what you took away from this is that you should go find the network that you want to grow, that you want to be a part of, where you feel like your own presence is actually improving the product for everyone else, because that's when you're going to really put your heart into it, find your passion, and actually build your network around you. So thank you so much for joining us here on Press Club, where the big names in tech talk talk about the biggest ideas. I'm Josh Constein. If you're building something interesting at the intersection of future of social and network effects, uh, we'd love to hear about it at SignalFire. We're a billion-dollar venture fund investing early stage seed to Series B, and we love helping our companies with recruiting. Uh, so thanks again for everyone for being here. Uh, would love to have you check out the, the podcast, the newsletter, but most importantly, go check out Andrew's book, follow Andrew, uh, and definitely check him out on Twitter because he's hilarious and a really great example of how to you know use humility and earnestness and authenticity to, to grow something as important as this book of tactics for everybody out there building their own things at the future, uh, at, the, at the cusp of the future of social. So Andrew, thanks again for being here on Press Club. Love to have you here. Hope to have you again sometime. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys.